I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On today's show, we go through the latest details on the mass murder rampage at a Texas elementary school. First, we touch on what could possibly explain law enforcement's failing to shut down the shooter for some 60 or 90 minutes. Then we get into our political and media class's utter failure to suggest any solutions that A, would prevent something like this from happening, and B, have a realistic chance of actually becoming law. Sad, yet entirely predictable. Then I report the worst hot takes from the likes of Barack Obama and Mitt Romney and Joe the Biden, and Democrats out in California as well were particularly bad. Of course, we discuss Robert Patio Rourke's decision to crash a press conference held by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin, and so much more. Then I wrap the monologue with a quick rundown of the rest of the news, from soaring gas prices to Biden's baby formula disgrace to a new trans doll for little girls put out by Mattel. No kidding. We have two guests on today's show. First is Jonathan Gilliam, a former Navy SEAL and FBI agent who fills us in on what is going on in terms of attack survival. This is where he's a real expert. His book, Sheep No More, The Art of Awareness and Attack Survival, which I've read and recommend, is really a must-read in situations like this. He gives his assessment of this horrific mass shooting incident, as well as a few others in recent memory, and shares some of his analysis, but also what he believes are recommendations that all of us can take to our personal lives to make sure this doesn't happen to our own communities. Then we speak to Mike Benz, a new guest to the show and the founder of Foundation for Freedom Online. He's the man whose research was behind Breitbart's viral post on Bill Gates using dark money mechanisms to fund anti-Elon Musk efforts. He explains what's up and how all this is possible and legal. Let's get into it right now. latest that is coming out that I think will be a huge topic of conversation today uh, is that it was apparently 90 minutes between the initial 911 call and the gunman who was the mass murderer of children was shot dead. Um, and we have not pieced together all of the pieces at Breitbart, and we have guys working around the clock on this to try to get the full story, but uh, this was inevitably going to come out, and we would reason to believe pretty early on um, uh, when we were looking into it that this is going to be part of the story, and figuring out why there is such a gap is going to be really interesting. It, was there some sort of a hostage situation? Um, was it the fact that law enforcement was moving slowly. I'm guessing that wasn't the case, but maybe there was certain types of law enforcement that wasn't available in the Ovalde region versus, I don't know, a bigger city like uh, um, San Antonio or something, which I think is like an hour and a half away. So we're trying to piece this together, but it is a a story that I think a lot of people are going to be talking about today is that was there more that law enforcement could have done? And the answer, of course, is yes, but not all of it is about the law enforcement that's in place locally. A lot of it is about the attitudes uh, that we've seen across this country the last couple of years, which is uh, I don't think it's coincidental that we've talked a lot about defunding the police, some rhetoric that has kind of gone away and uh, there was not a a robust enough police presence in order to to shut this thing down within 90 minutes. I mean, maybe there were cops who got there, perhaps. 
perhaps is what we'll find out. And they were trying to uh, be careful entering the school where this maniac had barricaded himself with a bunch of children. Um, but clearly whatever decisions were made were not were not good ones, aside from perhaps by the Border Patrol person who we'll learn more about who ended up uh, shooting him dead finally. But just so many children are, are, are dead. So devastating. And I can't tell you, this is such a sad story where there are so many people in my life who don't follow the news who are asking me to tell them what's going on and why and what. And that's so toxic for society that this is what engages people. And that's why these monsters do it. And unfortunately, us talking about it, I do think it encourages it quite a bit. But we have to process this stuff when it gets to this level. And we will try to make sense of this 90-minute gap for you guys. But I'm guessing what we're going to see is we're going to see either that there was some sort of the thought there was some sort of a hostage-like situation where there is hostage negotiations, or we're going to see that whatever SWAT team resources were not present in Uvalde needed to come in from San Antonio. I'm guessing it's going to be one or both of those, but I don't know yet. And I only offer this guess to you because there will probably be a lot of people uh, who are outraged uh, local law enforcement. And I'm not 100% sure that's going to be the right take. Maybe it is in the end, but that's just one place where I would caution all of you uh, to think, think through that one before that's where we go. Um, there's other things that are people are discussing that are worth bringing up is Facebook posts that went up not too long before the attack, but just an amazing thing that the preening on social media, the venting on social media is just not made us a, a better, a better peoples. And as I say, I say this is someone who benefits from social media as much as I don't like it personally, my company that is very benefit benefits greatly from social media, but overall it just has been a place where people divide. Uh, we're, where we divide and we elevate some of the worst elements of society on these things. And there's just no doubt about it. That's part of uh, what's elevated, you know, lots of things that we could do. We could handle a little less of in America, I think are uh, thrive on social media, unfortunately, some good stuff do too, like all bright parts content, but a lot of stuff is um, really not good that goes on in these places. As all of you know, uh, there's a lot of narrative about the attacker being bullied and growing violent, which is, I guess, noteworthy to put out, but I don't know how much of a pattern there was. But the real one is that he'd cut his own face and use BB guns on random people. And that's the sort of thing where when you start seeing people harming themselves in their own face, um, cut his face with knives over and over, according to... Um, a person who had known him since elementary school. And that's one of these ones where you would think that this would have been flagged for authorities. And when you were in, and if it wasn't, then why wasn't it? And the thought is that I have is that as opposed to defunding the police, why isn't it that when people are doing this sort of behavior, this isn't getting flagged in a way where uh, uh, maybe this person does qualify for a red flag law type situation. And I don't like red flag laws because we all know it's a slippery slope, but we know that there is a ways if you are known to law enforcement as a violent individual type of person who might shoot BB guns at strangers or perhaps cut your own face and you're only 18 years old, then maybe there's a way to make it so that you can't get the guns. I don't think in, in retrospect with the hindsight being 2020, as they say, I don't think even the most hardcore pro-gun person would have liked to have had this individual to have had a gun. Uh, 
The question is, what are the solutions being offered? What are the solutions being offered? And that's not what we're, we're not getting great solutions here. I was very struck by a tweet that Mitt Romney fired off. Grief overwhelms the soul. Children slaughtered, lives extinguished, parents' hearts wrenched, incomprehensible. I offer prayer and condolence, but no, it is grossly inadequate. We must find answers. Nothing wrong about this tweet, aside from the fact that isn't this the guy who wanted to be president 15 years ago and or I guess 10 years ago? And isn't this a guy who's currently a U.S. senator? And wasn't this the guy who was a governor of a major state? A guy with millions of followers online and dozens of grandkids. So uh, he says we must find answers. Well, where are your answers, Matt? What do we got here? And this has been the thing that I've been posing to people who've reached out to me in my life who are not as hardcore pro-Second Amendment as I have, saying this is a tough one. I want to hear your explanation. And I'm saying, here's what I, here's what I want to hear. I want to hear methods that we can use so that monsters like this person don't get the guns and good guys do keep the guns because you can't impose all these laws that will just punish the law-abiding people who play by the rules and have those be enforced by government agents with guns. That doesn't work for a lot of people. I don't think it works for most people. Um, there's a poll in Rasmussen recently that we highlighted at Breitbart that the majority of Americans do not believe more gun control is going to solve these issues. And, and why would they think that? Majority of likely voters do not believe more gun control would stop mass shootings. So give me the, give me the solution, gun control folks. Give me the solution where you get 18-year-old monsters don't get the guns, but the good guys get to keep them. So we don't have a society that only has the bad guys in the government with the guns. And try to give me a solution that doesn't involve uh, uh, people who are not trustworthy government agents with giant guns who are in charge of enforcing this stuff. It's impossible to do. And that's why a lot of people are, uh, there's no compromise on these issues. That's why the NRA types do not want to have any gun control because it's a slippery slope, and I generally agree with them. And this is why the Democrats are never satisfied with whatever gun control is put forward. Chuck Schumer was going to put emergency gun control vote on the floor yesterday, and then at the last minute, he pulled it. So this is one of those whirlwind news cycles where when I was catching up in the morning um, after the show, when the dust settles from my early morning routine, and then kind of, you know, mid-morning, um, the, it was, a, oh, here it comes, emergency gun control legislation. They're putting something on the floor, and then three hours later, it was not going on the floor. We're not going to do it. Why? Because the Democrats don't have a solution that could get any sort of bipartisan support on this. In fact, they can't even probably unify their own party with Manchin and Cinema, and maybe a couple others. Warner, Virginia, Tester, places that, in Montana, places that kind of like guns. I mean, he can't even get his own party involved in this in a way that makes sense. I want to play this clip from Senator Bill Cassidy. Can we play cut 11, please, Haley? Obviously, Buffalo and New York, they have red flag laws, and they didn't stop Buffalo. And this gentleman passed a background, the, the fellow, Mr. Ramos in Texas, uh, passed a background check, and that didn't stop this tragedy. So it's easy to kind of draw comfort from things, but you have to find, uh, um, you know, kind of solutions as well. 
And I think that's what Chris is suggesting we discuss fully. I agree with him totally. Chris Murphy, he's talking about a senator who's a, the biggest gun grabber in the Senate. Uh, but so uh, what's the point here? So what we've tried in terms of gun controls are not are not going to work. So you get the red flag law in Buffalo, which didn't work, and it should have if they had it. And then in Evalde, they had the background check, which it, it, that didn't work either. So the gun controls are trying. They're not doing the trick, I guess. So again, come up with something short of we go around, guys with guns, huge guns, government guns, contra the Second Amendment, which, you know, by the way, it is in the Constitution, should count for something, right? And they show up at your house and they take your guns from you and then they, they incinerate them. Aside from that, what else you got? So I'll tell you what I got. You get some more armed people in the schools, which clearly wasn't the case here, at least to the level that it could have been. I'll tell you what's not the solution to fund the police. That's not the solution. That's not going to help anything. So uh, we're all searching for answers and there's not a lot of good ones, but I just find it very irritating when you see this sort of rush to social media to preen from people who have no intention in the situation other than to get accolades for being the most sympathetic, the most outraged, the most compassionate. We're all outraged and sympathetic and compassionate and we all would like to find solutions. But sadly, the solutions the Democrats are offering are almost non-existent. They're unrealistic levels of gun control, which will never happen in a lot of social media virtue signaling. And the right's got some ideas that the left would not tolerate. The right would probably like a little more robust policing, make sure the bad guys are, are there would be more resources that go into catching the bad guys ahead of time. Even Rand Paul would be into that. And he's the most libertarian senator there is. That's number one. And then number two would be make sure that the schools are, uh, that there is more protection for the children in schools. Um, I think I mentioned this in yesterday's show. I forget if I did in the opening, but it's worth repeating. Um, That we were exactly in the same place as we were with Sandy Hook. We've done nothing to protect kids since then, as far as we can tell. Exactly the same spot. So that's not a good thing. I mean, there should be more that's done. We have a reality in this country, which is that when we've got hundreds of millions of guns and we've got a society with Second Amendment, which is does a lot more good than harm, in my opinion, occasionally does harm. Okay, so occasionally. So let's figure out how to deal with it. How do we deal with it? Uh, I, I will tell you the solutions coming from the left are non-existent. Schumer chickens out, doesn't put his gun control legislation on the floor. I like a lot more what Lauren Boebert says, who is a a, a big gun toter, Republican from uh, Colorado. At a minimum, schools need certified armed teachers. That to me is much more helpful. But of course, the left would treats that as utterly offensive. Andrew Pollack who is a father who lost his daughter in the Parkland shooting, gave us, gave us an exclusive comment at Breitbart. We said, we, need, we send billions around the world, but leave our kids unprotected. That's what one of the callers called in and said yesterday on the broadcast. Um, Big Joe Biden spoke some more, which, so he had a, a lot of foot in his mouth as always. Another sharp suit, though. Guy wears a good suit. Not a good leader, but a good suit wearer. 
And he said an assault weapons ban has no negative impact on the Second Amendment. It literally does. The Second Amendment says the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. So that is an infringement. So he's got to deal with that. We got the Constitution. So that is looming large in this situation. And the next thing is we did an assault weapon ban and it had no impact on crime. Because let's not forget, as uh, these mass shootings are so horrific and so demoralizing and are uh, uh, terrorist-like, if not terrorist, it's either terrorism or terrorism adjacent. It does cause chaos and horror in the communities in an unbelievable way. But there still will be, as we will track at Breitbart, we will track dozens of people who will be shot in Chicago over the weekend and it will happen every weekend and it will happen every major city in the country. And those people aren't all using assault weapons. In fact, the vast majority of them are not. Uh, I made a point to pull down how many were shot in Chicago last weekend and the number was 28. So again, there's there's it's not the same as this monster who should have been more known to authorities and was not for whatever reason, which we'll sort out over time, being able to bring a big gun to a school, lock himself into a school, and shoot a bunch of kids. I, I get there's a difference. But uh, let's not forget where the real percentage of gun crime is. Biden also, again, did his thing where he talks about deers and Kevlar vests. I, I, I think I kind of get his point. But he does this thing where he talks about, I guess, making a point about how the Second Amendment is about hunting and hunting only, which is not true. That's another false construct that he creates. What in God's name do we need an assault weapon for except to kill someone? Deers aren't running through the forest with Kevlar vests on for God's sake. High capacity magazine to hold up to 100 rounds. You think deer are wearing Kevlar vests. But the Second Amendment is not about hunting. The, the, the Second Amendment is about perhaps a tyrannical government, which... I don't I, I don't know about you guys. I'm not entirely convinced it's impossible in this country. Um, it is worth noting over and over and over that the Democrats have done their best to remove cops from schools. Remove them. Remove them. Fewer cops in schools. So John Nolte's a rundown of some of the biggest people. Uh, there is, uh, we tracked, we're tracking a story out of California where a prominent school board member, a guy named Nick Melvoin, who I actually went to high school with, was a nice guy in high school. And he was one of the guys out there, it's like every other person on the left, <clears throat> who's out there on Twitter, you know, calling for uh, a, a, some sort of audit of the gun lobby. But he'd openly advocated for taking cops out of schools. So is it the gun lobby or is it perhaps, I don't know, maybe the kids are sitting ducks. Maybe that's an issue. We can agree to disagree on it, but it's a worth a consideration for people file off, fire off virtue signaling treat, tweets from halfway across the country. Part of what's so agonizing about this process is you see people like Gavin Newsom out of California, which is going through a massive crime wave. He's in their way and in because he's running for president. 
It's like a race to your keyboard to take advantage. To take advantage of mass death of innocent children. And it feels like the politicians can't help it. No one has any decorum. It seems like no one can resist taking the opportunity. There's dead kids out there. Let's exploit it. And I'm sure they would say if uh, I had pinned down uh, Gavin Newsom on the show from Crime Plague, California, where he's tweeting, who the hell are we if we cannot keep our kids safe? This is preventable. We need comprehensive gun safety now. Uh, it is, it, 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 he would tell me he's showing leadership. And that's why we're so divided is because one man's leadership is another man, meaning me, taking advantage of the death of a lot of children. Painful, painful. We barely have a moment to grieve before uh, now. We, we used to. People used to try to take a moment to grieve. Now we do not. Now we take a moment to take advantage. All right. I, I can't delay it anymore. The big story of the day. Robert Patty Beto O'Rourke, the Irishman who's running for governor in Texas. He came out and he uh, crashed a meeting that was being held by Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, um, who we should reach out to, by the way. He hasn't been on the show in a while. The mayor of Uvalde, Don McLaughlin. Let's play. We've got some audio of it. Some of it's beeped and some of it is unclear, but we got it. Let's hear some of it. Cut 21, go. Uh, Pass the mic to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. Get out of line. No. He needs to get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to so. This is totally predictable. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a bitch that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. Yeah, so as a sick son of a bee making this political issue, that's the mayor of the city who's grieving, dealing with the, the crisis of his life. Um, and I like that Dan Patrick called him an embarrassment, which he is. But again, this is a Rorschach test. And if you saw the traffic online, the online left, which was very excited about this topic, was um, getting behind Beto. It was it was a clinic in social media propaganda. I was watching the dials and I was watching how much interest there was in Beto uh, positively on behalf of uh, on the Democrat side. They couldn't get enough of Beto just showing up. And again, that is one man's empty political gesture is another man's leadership. And you can bet with the base, the left-wing base, the anti-gun base, this is uh, this was seen as a heroic act, just simply showing up. Police, uh, police had to escort him. And it just reminds you of how weak this is. Those of you who are on the Democrat side, I imagine if you're a pure leftist and you're looking at this and you really don't like guns, and you don't really don't like the Second Amendment, there has to be an emptiness of this, right? I, I, aren't the Democrats in power? I think... One of the takes I gave consistently during the Obama years 
was that that was probably Obama's biggest failing in his eyes, that he was never able to pass substantial gun control. I think he would have liked to have done more on his climate agenda and a gun control. I think those are the two, but guns might be the worst. And so Biden is in power. He's got both houses of Congress, no gun control. So there's a weakness to this too. All right, that's where we are. Unbelievable to hear all these California politicians weighing in. Massive crime out there. $7 per gallon gas in San Francisco. I mentioned we're close to $8 in um, where my family's at in the LA area. Gas price is up 47 cents in the last month alone. Thanks, Putin. Baby formula shortage update. Jill Biden had a photo op as shelves remain empty with a pallet of baby formula that will, you know, feed a few thousand babies for a week or two. So, it's, uh, uh, it, it, more reason why there'll be more gun control talk. Oh boy, I should mention that Barack Obama somehow used the Texas shooting to memorialize George Floyd. George Floyd died two years ago. I think it was yesterday. Today or yesterday? I think it was yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. Uh, How these are related, only cynical politicians can connect the two. It's so bad that Obama would do this. One of the things that is clear that we all could have benefited from in Texas is just a few more police around, right? And the George Floyd death was used to justify the whole defund the police movement. Not to mention riots all summer long in the Summer of Love 2020. Uh, George Floyd died because a cop uh, uh, knelt on him for a long time. And he was in incredible distress because he had a lot of drugs in his system. Like that's, that's how he died. It's a combination of drugs, resisting arrest, and of course, most importantly, that a cop knelt on him for eight and a half minutes. So like, what does it have to do with guns at all? It's nothing to do with guns. Is it totally unrelated? Cheapo. Cheapo move by Obama. He's such a big disappointment. There's an interview. I plugged this in the past. There's a long interview I've done with uh, PBS, which I do from time to time every year or two. They call me to, to do something. And unlike most other left-wing outlets that will interview me, they actually let me say my full piece and they put it online. They'll make a documentary that comes out where they kind of chop up my words, but you can see the full interview on the internet, which is good. And I think they there is one about um, America being divided. I forget what it's called. I'll, 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 I'll figure out the name of it and I'll fill you guys in on it. But they asked me why uh, uh, America got so divided and I blamed Obama more than anyone else. He said that there were so many opportunities where he had a chance to unify the nation instead chose division. And his uh, homeboy, Joe the Biden, has really taken the ball in that regard. Um, quick woke update. Mattel has announced that Barbie dolls celebrate trans actor Laverne Cox. Laverne Cox is a biological male, lives life as a female, and now is a Barbie doll that looks like a woman. Good stuff, Mattel. Thanks. And of course, this was celebrated on the Today Show. Today Show, NBC. NBC, which does incredible amounts of business in China. Because NBC, Comcast, Universal is the conglomerate. Um, 
Breitbart figured out that the new Pride collection, thanks to our Jerome Hudson, who will be in tomorrow for me as of now, uh, Breitbart uh, figured out that the uh, LGBTQ plus Pride ampersand pregnant man emoji collection that Disney is putting out for children to indoctrinate them into the trans cult. It is a cult. You're not allowed to question it. You got to go along with it exactly the way the left tells you to. All these clothes are apparently made in China. So we got NBC. They're doing the trans Mattel Barbie doll. Where's that made? Probably China, I'm guessing. Go check that out. And uh, Jerome, if you're listening, he probably is. And we got to go get the uh, Laverne Cox Barbie doll, figure out where that's made. So they're making the Pride Collection in China one of the world's worst human rights abusers. And this immediately got pounced on by Ron DeSantis, which is, he's good at this stuff. He never misses an opportunity. Um, a DeSantis spokesperson said it's hypocritical, but it's not surprising the woke company like Disney would threaten the rights of parents in Florida, but we happily do business with Chinese Communist Party, one of the world's worst human rights abusers. Amen. We are uh, losing focus on what is important in our society. Uh, One more I'll throw out there before we go to the phones. A massive data hack revealed thousands of photos from China's Uyghur concentration camps. It's an amazing thing that happened. Huge hack of clearly anti-CCP people. I asked Francis Martel, uh, do we think they're Breitbart fans? Um, We had a laugh and we hope so. But files include photographic evidence of mass detention and abuse, including of very young children from oppressed Uyghur Muslim minority. Trove, collectively referred to as the Xinjiang Police Files, was originally obtained in 2018 by hackers and was provided by Dr. Adrian Zenz of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Just incredible work. One of the world's leading investigators of the Uyghur genocide. Very disturbing revelations, and we've got more coverage for that at U Breitbart News, including photos of children. Sick stuff out of the CCP. But they don't have a free, free press there. And um, LeBron loves his special shoes that he makes in China, and Apple loves making their iPhones there, and Tesla loves making their cars there. Jonathan Gilliam is former Navy SEAL, former FBI agent, and someone who has thought deeply about issues of mass shootings, of terror incidents, and other sort of attacks on unsuspecting people, as well as personal safety from home invasions. He's a guy who's thought about this more than anyone I know, and he also happens to be someone I trust enough to fill in for me from time to time on the broadcast. So uh, I picked his brain on the latest in Texas, what he's seeing, and what are the most relevant things we can take away from this, if anything, at this point? Let's hear from Jonathan Gilliam. Jonathan, it's great to have you on, and I think it makes sense to discuss with you, who's someone who understands uh, these sort of active shooter situations, 
and when you're really in a one of these fraught chaotic moments what to do and i i want to know what we know so far about this case in texas uh, what you're seeing that i'm guessing were mistakes or things that disturb you and maybe lessons that we can't actually learn from this thing well thanks for having me on alex and uh, uh you know I, I when i wrote that book sheep no more um what I did was I took my time uh, as an attacker and as a defender, and I built a technique that is somewhat used in threat assessments, but went beyond that to show people that they can actually look at a situation or actually look at an area um, from the attacker's point of view and determine who, why, when, where, and how a place could be attacked, what the vulnerabilities are, how those can be mitigated, how you can have plans of action long before anything occurs. And it's so vital that we do this, but it seems to be, Alex, the biggest thing that keeps being overlooked by everybody, yeah. mostly because of politics, mostly because of incompetence at the top of law enforcement, at schools and in politics. We go back to Columbine and we look at the mistakes that were made there we continue to see these mistakes made over and over from the point of the the uh, the kids or that the attackers, let's just say the attackers, are a known threat. Even the one in Texas, there was a, a church shooting several years ago. That guy was a known threat, had been arrested in the Air Force, but they failed to report it outside of the Air Force. Um, most of these people are, have counselors that they've been to. They're on some type of of uh, a serotonin inhibitor or some type of Prozac or something like that. And they have mental issues that are known. Many of them have run-ins with law enforcement. I would say almost all of them have. And in that process of all those things being repeated, there's a clear picture of who does these attacks. That's being completely overlooked where people are not engaging with these people. Law enforcement is not approaching them. And I, I can't understand why, because it's not against the law for a police officer to get information about somebody and their odd behavior and approach them. But this is, is, is not happening. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this school had many of the same issues that Columbine had from 1991. Back doors were unlocked. That's how the guy got in. He walked in through a back door. I looked at the school online. It is ripe with vulnerabilities, but many of them could be mitigated. And the circumstance of how the, the guy got in there, how Ramos got in there, and then the fact that law enforcement, the first responders that get there, do not engage and stay engaged with the shooter is beyond me. I cannot understand that. So I, I'm if guessing we're going we're to find that it was some sort of a hostage situation where they thought that negotiating with the guy could be better than kind of blowing the doors yeah. in. and then. But, but Alex, uh, those days yeah. are gone. Those days are gone. You, you saw what happened at the Pulse nightclub. If you're engaged with the shooter shooting, he's not going to be engaged in shooting other people. And we, we've gone past the point where you negotiate with people. The, the thought of a life matters is gone from a lot of society and these people that are on the fringe there's no negotiating with them 
So sure. So so, know, but this is an important point. This is an important point. So so we I, I want to emphasize this. So so if we find out that this is there was some sort of a hope that they would be able to. Um, maybe buy time for more reinforcement to get there, try to keep the guy uh, talking or something or the right. hold up or not doing anything that involved, you know, killing kids uh, might be a good strategy. Uh, you think that's over. You think it's you just got to blast, blast the doors in and take this guy out. That's the move. There, there's circumstances where you can negotiate with people, but those individuals are typically known. The way that they show up, the way that the process is is unfolding is that there is – the individual gives somebody a reason to negotiate. But in circumstances where they're in a school, uh, where they're in a church, where they're in a, a Walmart, for instance, or a grocery store, where like in Buffalo, where they're just moving through shooting, the, the chances are, especially because these people are known to the community um, and they're known to have issues, the chances are they're not going to stop. And here's the biggest thing, Alex, that nobody really ever talks about is let's say that the shooting has been going on for, you know, usually it's typically 90 uh, seconds, about three minutes before law enforcement arrives on the scene. That's the typical time for these mass shooters. And if somebody has been shooting at that point in time, they need to realize that people could still be alive that have been shot and people that may be alive in that room. If you engage the individual immediately, you could save lives. I, I'll just I'll say this. When I went through SEAL training, one of the things that we were trained to do is if we go through a door into an area and the first or second guy or anybody in the stack gets shot, you don't stop and tend to that guy you immediately engage whatever uh, he was engaged with and you eliminate that threat. Then you tend to the wounded. And what's happening here is that law enforcement is being told by society, we don't need you. And then, so they don't train them. And so when it comes time for them to go to war, nobody wants to go to war. And that's, that's actually what's occurring right now is a complete breakdown in the system. So this is something that I'm seeing this tweet a lot online. A lot of people are kind of taking up this narrative that it seems like the hesitation may have been just because we are not grooming and breeding and training the people to understand that this is the point of law enforcement is to get in there and to to stop these guys before they kill our kids. Alex, when you go to a rally, I know this sounds completely off base, but when you go to a rally and you're having a peaceful rally about supporting police or whatever, and Black Lives Matter or Antifa show up and they start fights or they start yelling and cursing, that is not protected speech under the First Amendment. But yet law enforcement will step up and keep those people and protect those people so they can disrupt a, 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 an actual scheduled rally. If police are that lost in what the actual constitutional rights are in this nation, there's no way that you can count on them showing up and doing the right job uh, when it comes to – I like to use the term go to war because when you show up, everybody wants to be a warrior. But when it's time to go to war, only a particular amount of people who are well-trained, like the officers that showed up from Border Patrol from that special unit, um, are willing to go through that door. And – on top of this, I'm really coming down hard on law enforcement, but the reality is society is right there. People don't realize 
what their rights are or what their rights aren't. They don't realize what police are for and what they're not for. You get more calls for police to come and uh, help somebody open up a door or shut off the alarm on their home. Uh, and when they show up for domestic uh, assault or something like that, they get cursed out. And so police get all confused as to what their job is. The community doesn't know what their job is. And so what we end up having is this, this like, it's the perfect bad scenario of people who are showing you, I'm a threat, nobody faces a threat, and then when the threat shows up to kill, nobody's prepared for it. So one thing that is clear, we would love to have a system where people who are this bad and inclined to do such evil don't get guns. The problem is it seems very hard to do that because you had, for example, in Florida, uh, where the, the Parkland shooter was well known to the FBI, didn't make a difference. There were red flag laws in New York that didn't get the job done there. And then right. in Texas, we had a scenario where the guy, had, you know, was barely 18. And though he should have been known, was pretty easily slipped under the radar. And it just seems like that's the entire spectrum. Uh, and it just failure when it's known to law enforcement, failure when it's semi-known to law enforcement, and failure when the shooter's unknown to law enforcement. It just seems like a total systemic breakdown. And I think this does kind of push people who are on the gun control side to just say, well, we just need to start taking guns away from people. I mean, that's ne- that, that is never going to, we- it's never going to work. Look, you can look at what you just pointed out in all these liberal cities, uh, all these liberal states around the country. You know, I, I just moved from New York to Arizona. Um, I went from complete oppression when it comes to carrying a weapon to complete freedom in Arizona. And what you saw in New York is that it's more violent. It's more violent where they have stricter gun laws out in Arizona. You know, in Arizona, if you pull out a gun and start to do something, chances are there's going to be somebody around there that's armed is going to kill you. So, you know, this is the the reality of this before anybody ever brings up uh, who and who should not have a gun. They need to do something about this whole system that we just talked about. Um, since 1991, when they actually started to realize that, hey, these mass shooters uh, are becoming an issue, the only thing they came up with is active shooter training, and that's typically after the shooting actually occurs. There's no threat assessments. There's no conversation about how we train uh, teachers to react. Most schools are not doing anything. I, I got offered – or not offered. Uh, I had parents reach out to me. They wanted me to go to uh, – this school in Maryland um, and do a threat assessment. It's a huge elementary school. And when they proposed it to the school board, the school board said, what he's going to charge uh, for, uh, to come and do this, we'll just do a beautification of the, the school grounds and make everybody feel better. So they planted trees and flowers and skipped over a threat assessment. That's how ridiculous this stuff is. Yeah, it's getting even more ridiculous. It seems like every time uh, we go through this, uh, give me your thoughts on the fact that a border patrol agent, um, so a federal officer, was able was the one who stopped this. Is the training that much better there, is, or do you think this we're going to encounter that this is just one particularly brave individual? No, the, I think the team that they sent up there uh, is a specially trained team. It's like they're. The, the equivalent of their tier one asset of the, the guys who are really well trained in room clearing and, and uh, hostage uh, rescue. But Alex, this is the reality. You know, like I said earlier, if you show up and you keep the guy engaged 
eventually you're going to overwhelm the individual. If it's one individual or even if it's several individuals, if you're, if, if before, before they let these individual, these cops on the streets and periodically they need to bring them. I don't care if they do it with Nerf guns. I've trained people with Nerf guns on how to clear rooms. They need to have the training to do it, and they need to be prepared before they get there that they are willing to give their life. Because I would rather be a bullet sponge and know that I saved, you know, 18, 19 children and teachers than to know that I stood outside and did nothing. And I'll say this one other thing. I could do a Zoom with every school in the entire United States or a Facebook Live where they give me representatives from the school, three people, four people, and I could teach all of them within four hours how to do a threat assessment on their school. They could do it themselves because they know the school better than most people because they're there every day. And it could be done that easily. But yet all they want to do, people want to take it to politics. They want to you know, throw blame here and there. The reality is there's plenty of blame to go around. We have to stop, we have to pause, and we have to do threat assessments on these schools and come up with real mitigation strategies. Somebody said yesterday on Facebook, they said, I thought it was great. Take all these cameras that are all over the United States where they're taking pictures of people at, at, uh, at traffic stops that are monitored 24 hours and put those on schools. I thought that was a fantastic idea. So, Jonathan, I got two minutes left, and again, people should pick up the book Sheep No More, uh, which is, it really is must-reading. I don't know why you wouldn't read it, because you never know when you might need the the information therein. Uh, but give me your, your 90-second version. What would you do if you were on a school board right now, if you were principal of a school? What steps would you take to make sure your school isn't next? I would get this, the, the mayor or the city council, I'd get the chief of police and the sheriff, and I would sit down and I would say, what do we need to do? How can we do a threat assessment? Let's get a, the janitor from the schools. Let's get uh, some of the teachers. Let's get uh, some, a couple of parents. And even some of the seniors that are there, let's sit down and roundtable this and learn where the vulnerabilities of these, of these schools are at. Let's lock it down. And then let's start politicking this to get resource officers there, volunteer vet. There's veterans all over this country veterans former police if you've been a police officer more than three even two years you know that they're able to carry a gun and not kill somebody with it let's get those people in here let's uh, get them where they're armed at the schools and let's stop this nonsense and you could do that that is possible to do Jonathan Gilliam thanks so much for the time and I look forward to having you back soon you got it my friend thank you New guest of the show, Mike Benz. He's someone who's really fluent on issues of NGOs, these non-governmental organizations that are used by the billionaire class, as well as others, some people with good intentions, but in order to be able to 
uh, fund a bunch of things that align with their political interests. One person who's using this to a wild degree is Bill Gates, who is funding nearly a dozen dark money entities, and we'll get into what those are, that are anti-Elon Musk. Not to mention, even though Bill Gates purports to be someone who's deeply concerned about climate change, has shorted Elon Musk's Tesla, which... You have to admit, even if you're not a Musk fan, and I'm not a particularly big Musk fan, uh, Tesla does produce cars that potentially could be part of the solution. Bill Gates doesn't care. He shorts them anyway. So Benz tries to help us understand what's really going on here and why so many of our billionaire elite are feuding with one another at this time. He's got a good analysis and a lot of information. Let's hear from him. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's great to be on. Thank you. Uh, so let me talk to you about this story. Uh, I, I know you're you're up on it. What are the essentials that people need to know about it? And then most importantly, how deep is the feud between Musk and Gates? And it seems like Musk kind of fights with everyone, which is something I do like about him. Um, but give me the Musk and Gates breakdown. Sure. So the importance of the story is is the role of proxy wars in the issue of censorship. Since the terms of engagement in terms of online freedom changed after 2016, uh, new predicates have been constantly created for censorship. Because nobody wants to come out and say that they're for censorship, they disguise their preferences for rigging the information ecosystem through uh, redefining concepts like democracy, through redefining concepts like free speech, and often through channeling their efforts through proxy groups such as NGOs, such as activist groups, such as you know, national security uh, affiliated think tanks. Um, and now there's really a veritable Pandora's box of proxies for pushing the issue of censorship. And this this piece on uh, on. Bill Gates versus Elon Musk is a is really a great example of that. And yeah, as so, the second question, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then we'll, we'll get back to the second question, but but this is really important. So this is a way that guys like Gates have figured out a way to funnel untold amounts of money into causes they support and against causes they don't support. Is they just break it up, they cut a few checks that are relatively small. But together, they collectively make up what almost looks like a consensus of organizations that are uh, lobbying very hard on behalf of causes that maybe the even the you know the core consumers of his products don't go along with. Right, right, right. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Although, <laughs> even Microsoft has moved significantly into this space. I think in 2019 there was a terms of service update in the Windows license. That, uh, that added a hate speech predicate for removing uh, a user's ability to use Windows. This was a right. stealth edit, essentially, in the, in the Windows terms of service that has not, to my knowledge, been enforced to date, but is now in there. And if you type the wrong words into a word processor uh, with a concept, for example, something like you know, hate speech has been interpreted to mean a, you know, a, a border wall policy or you know, disagreeing with critical race theory. And so, you know, this is a tactic for censorship that I call inflation, conflation, elimination, where you take a sort of meme that has been inflated with a tremendous amount of universal hatred and often justifiably so, say racism or Rush, Russian meddling. And then you 
pick a proxy for the thing you want to censor, yeah. not the thing itself. You don't say we're censoring conservatives. You pick a or we're censoring Donald Trump, for example. And this happens to some extent on the left as well. I don't mean to make this partisan, but uh, but you then conflate the proxy for who you're trying to target with this inflated meme. And now you've got your elimination predicate because you say, oh, they're one and the same. And so a similar thing is done here in the context of you know, Bill Gates and the sort the, the the plan to to further normalize, institutionalize, and scale the censorship measures on health misinformation and health disinformation that became the standard part of big tech's terms of services in the run up to and during the you know the the COVID era. Right. So you get a uh, so here's how the process seems to work. And it seems like this is totally legal and it's a easy way to hide money and even get tax write offs by doing this. You get someone like a Bill Gates who makes his money from software and he makes a lot of software in China and he some of it's made here and a lot of some of it's developed here and he makes all this sort of money and he wants to support left-wing causes. So then what he does is he will fund a group via the Gates Foundation, a foundation he creates. We can get a lot of money in there, like the Tides Foundation, which is a charity, even though Tides Foundation to this audience is known for being left-wing um, and pushes left-wing causes, but has somewhat of credibility in the public space. And then the Tides Foundation will then funnel that money to places like Media Matters. They will funnel that money to places like um, a Black Lives Matter, like NARAL, like some of the more mm-hmm. uh, hardcore left-wing activist groups. And boom, Bill Gates' Microsoft money that is, uh, again, I'm staring at a Microsoft computer I've got right now I've got uh, that I uh, have for a purpose that I could not avoid. Um, the that money is going to NARAL now. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm funding right now because I got this computer. And this is all done just sort of in the dead of night and no one is paying attention other than you guys now at the FFO. Right, right. And one of the things, so, you know, FFO has done a full analysis of essentially all 26 of the NGO signatories to the threat letter to Musk over the, you know, advertiser boycott that would befall the company if he reversed the censorship policies. And what you find in, in essentially every one of these NGOs is uh, fairly recent activity, starting in 2017, of adding sort of a new branch to their charter. You know, they may be, uh, you know, say, groups dedicated to issues around abortion or climate or, um, you know, racial justice or pick, pick your topic area. Virtually every one of these NGOs has, ha- has added a new sort of mission statement dedicated to pushing Internet censorship. And this you, you can see through the constellation of it why this is the case, because this is essentially electioneering. That is, in order to achieve that policy objective, if you can just censor your opponents off the face of the Internet, there will be no opposing voices on the policy side to what you're trying to promote. And with so much success in that tactic between, uh, you know, during the, the last administration and it being fully normalized during this one, this is now the new way of essentially, you know, making sure that your policy message saturates the information ecosystem is through this exact tactic. And what's so amazing about this, you know, Bill Gates pass through operation, especially with 
entities like the New Venture Fund and uh, the 1630 is that these are pretty naked political mega funds. I mean, there's there's not really much of a patina that you would have uh, with you know with with more charitable operating pass-throughs to even use it through. I mean, this was the the largest donation that the Gates Foundation had made for single-year contributions uh, in eight years was to this one new venture fund, which was funding several of these NGOs during the 2020 election cycle. And then it dipped from about $85 million down to $11 million in 2021. It's very reminiscent of the, the crash in donations to the Clinton Global Initiative after Hillary Clinton ran for president, and then suddenly the charitable activities magically dried up. Um, Mike Benz again is with me. He has got a new group called the Foundation for Freedom Online that it was instrumental in us getting the story out of uh, Bill Gates because he's done some incredible research. We were highlighting the funding all these anti-Musk groups. So talk about this open letter that was signed by these 26 organizations against Musk. Do you directly attribute this to Gates or do you think that there's more to it? And if so, what's Gates' big beef with Musk? And what's everyone's beef with Musk? He doesn't seem to get along with any of the other billionaires. <laughs> sure. So on the first question, what FFO has identified is at least 11 of the 26 have you know direct uh, you know Gates Foundation money pouring into their into their sponsors, and often these many of these NGOs have just a single sponsor. Uh, so eleven of those twenty six, uh, you know, uh, is is the figure for you know the the Gates attribution there. Although it's worth noting that there are other stakeholders as well, which gets to the point of who else is beefing with Musk in this respect. Uh, many of these NGOs are run by. Uh, Obama administration staffers, uh, many of them are financed by European governments. Uh, part of this is because of a push that started after 2016. I call it the transatlantic flank attack, which is essentially when the losers of the 2016 Brexit referendum teamed up with the losers of the 2016 presidential election to uh, create a cascade of changes in the European regulatory climate to stop the rise of uh, essentially what was at, you know, at the time a, a sort of growing popularity for right-wing populist groups and this concept of sovereignism that they described of trying to be sovereign from the EU and, and certain NATO structures. And so uh, there was a concerted drive by former Hillary Clinton State Department officials and former John Kerry State, State Department officials to use their influence and relationship networks they had built up in Europe to persuade European regulators to pass new laws like Germany's Nets DG in 2017 uh, with the express knowledge that doing so would force terms of service changes at the U.S. tech companies who were otherwise resistant on First Amendment grounds because they would simply be preserving continuity with their global markets in Europe. It's really a tremendous way this whole thing was organized. And as a result, you, you see in many of these NGOs, free speech oriented NGOs, ones like Access Now, which is one of the you know, key signatories. Uh, this was a free speech NGO uh, directed towards foreign governments in the early aughts and 2010s, you know, to promote a free and open internet in Iran and to promote free and open internet in China. And this, like so many other NGOs that were once dedicated to free speech abroad, 
are now being repurposed for censorship at home. Interesting. Okay, so where does this, uh, the, there are billions and billions of dollars that are flowing around this NGO industrial complex. Uh, what is the purpose of all this money and uh, on a domestic level, but also internationally? Because we all know if you look at people like Gates, they're not thinking about America. He's thinking about, you know, the globalist uh, super states. Right. So these NGOs function as the interstitials between the public sector governments, the private sector corporations. And they're a way of creating a coordinated campaign, sometimes on a national scale, sometimes on a regional scale, sometimes on a global scale, that uh, allows interests that span all of civil society to be coordinated for a simultaneous, you know, I call it a civil society encirclement campaign. So an example of this, uh, is a very similar thing happened in 2000, uh, it happened to Facebook that is now being threatened to, with Musk. In 2019, Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech in San Jose where he expressed that he was uh, not comfortable with how far the censorship pendulum was swinging and the pressures that he felt that he was under. And he indicated that he was going to try to resist that to the extent that he could. He was then hit with a civil society, mass NGO attack, uh, which caused $60 billion worth of revenue loss uh, at Facebook. And Zuckerberg then quickly folded up and created, you know, beefed up the content moderation divisions, uh, compromised with the NGOs who were encircling him and the civil society groups uh, to censor more aggressively, to increase the use of artificial intelligence, to uh, create these basically back channels into censorship decisions so that these civil society groups had input. And what, what makes this very, very troubling is you look at some of these NGOs and these are not really authentic principle-based uh, uh, you know, in institutions, and I can I can talk about examples of that, but I'll I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, no, that's it's it's good, and I want to keep um, I, I want to bring this back to Musk because it seems like they're trying to throw a lot at him now. And you know, I'm the if you're familiar with my thinking at all, Mike, then I'm very mixed on what Musk does because of his deep China connections. But obviously, right, right. his 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 takeover of Twitter would be something to be very welcome because Twitter is right. a, a not just a place where there's uh, no free speech. It's a place where sort of left-wing vitriol is uh, foments, metastasizes. So it would be great to see Twitter in a different iteration. And uh, this is just really not just, I think, ticked off uh, a lot of the powers that be, but it also seems to, at least to some degree, red-pilled Elon Musk a little bit as well. I know some of what he's doing has to be somewhat performative, but uh, it does look like there's a, some truth to it. So, uh, but what can be done to him? Because he is such a powerful force because he's worth so much, he's so many fans. Uh, he's obviously a very right. bright person. So where do you think this goes right now? Oh, um, you know, as as to where it goes, it's, this is this is not something that I would I would bet on at this point because there are so many different decision tree spindles into what could happen here. The question as to whether or not the deal will even close is very very much uh, you know up up in the air. To, uh, the questions about Musk's pain tolerance in terms of how much he's willing to actually endure 
you know, one of the things that is driving the knife's edge of the closing conditions here is the fact that a tremendous amount of the financing that Musk can muster for this depends on the stock price of Tesla. And what has happened to the stock price of Tesla since Musk did this announcement? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's crashed, and, and I don't want to misquote the precise amount, but uh, it's, an, it's an extraordinary degree of, sure. uh, of, of losses that, that Tesla has, has faced almost starting, I think, within 48 hours of the, uh, of the decision he made to, uh, you know, to, to make the acquisition. And you know, ironically, this actually plays into the Bill Gates story because much of the public beef spillover between Gates and Musk was when Gates confirmed via text message to Musk that he held a $500 million short position into Tesla. Right, and exactly. And Musk then put that on blast and said, well, if you really believe in climate change, then you will, you know, why would you short Tesla? And, you know, there's... That's a good point. And, but that makes you wonder as well, with Gates being attributable to at least 11 of those 26 NGOs, and the Tesla stock price uh, dropping, you know, like uh, you know, dropping at extreme speed uh, immediately after the acquisition and and, and continuing to, to to fall, it makes you wonder if if part of the civil society encirclement around Musk to ensure that he doesn't reverse censorship policies are simply bear raids on Tesla to prevent him from being able to finance the acquisition in the first place or forcing capitulation from him uh, yeah. so that he knows that he's going to have to pick. If he really wants to fight for free speech, he could lose everything that he's tried to you know, build in his other companies. Well, and that's part of why I've been a skeptic is because it's one thing to announce that you love free speech. It's another thing to really uh, uh, fight for it as uh, when it could mean immeasurable amounts of financial loss, even for a guy who's got more money than he'll ever need in a hundred lifetimes. So that's one thing I'll be watching very closely as this goes on. Um, and one thing that is also interesting is it's not just from the gates of the world that are uh, attacking Musk. It's also, you have to worry about the federal government. The FCC wants to stop Musk, uh, or at least some forces within it do. And the Senate is on the verge of confirming an ultra-radical leftist, a pro-censorship person named Gigi Sohn, who wants to censor conservative media. How worried should we be about this? Or do you trust Republicans to stop her? Um, and uh, how could she be a factor in this scenario? I'm tremendously concerned about that. I think that there are um, I think that what is the, the national narrative around the censorship issue is not nearly as informed on the free speech advocacy side as it needs to be. So much of these censorship pushes, so many of the NGO elements, for example, actually receive a tremendous amount of government funding. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I've mentioned the State Department several times uh, just because I, that was, that was, my remit and i as i noted there was a tremendous amount of coordination among the foreign policy exiled foreign policy wings of the u.s government and, and europe to actually initiate these regulatory changes um there's a tremendous amount of state department fund and to some extent dod funding for these content moderation pushes you know you there are there are 
these interstitial civil society groups like the Atlantic Council and the German Marshall Fund, you know, that have very, very senior national security, uh, you know, officials and operatives. They coordinate with uh, media and tech companies and activist groups, and they're all receiving government funding to do this. So I don't think Republicans or, you know, or, you know, centrist Democrats or just free speech advocates writ large have any idea of the scope and scale of government funded censorship initiatives. And this DHS board is a great example of this. And yeah. I I, again, Mike, your, your intro. Yeah. 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 Mike Benz again is my guest. FFO, the foundation for freedom online. Uh, Mike, we'll have you back and we'll talk some more about this stuff, but uh, the, give me the, the last one is we're certainly seeing some element of rebellion from some of the billionaire class from Elon Musk, uh, obviously bucking some left-wing narratives, regardless of how pure you think it is, there's something to it. And then you've got Mark Andreessen, another Silicon Valley billionaire uh, and investor, and uh, even guys like Jeff Bezos, who doesn't get along with Musk, is now all of a sudden occasionally sounding like a right winger on Twitter. Uh, what do you think is really going on here? And uh, what are the, the biggest things that you think? Uh, what do you think we know right now? Well, what's happening now is many forces that were traditionally aligned with the with the left or the center left now are fearing the left more than they fear the right. And especially because of, for example, on the censorship issue, you have, uh, you know, censorship is a very unforgiving thing. You need totalizing degrees of censorship in order to keep plugging each sequential hole. And this has a tremendous amount of collateral damage on stakeholders in the environment who uh, have aspects of their business or who have personal ideological beliefs that get trampled on in that process. Uh, I think that there is a fear that the monster that has been created, for example, on the censorship issue and in some of these other social and cultural issues, is now bigger than the billionaires themselves who once backed them. And in, in response to their own interests and their own projection of where the, how large the threat could, could snowball into, they are now beginning to hedge by turning towards, uh, you know, politics and 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 ideologies that uh that that is more that is less of a threat than what is now looking like it's beyond their control even with the billions in capital they have at their disposal mike uh keep up the good work at ffo if you want to support you where do they go uh foundation for freedom online we have a new website launching next week um and uh social media media handles are at uh at ffo underscore freedom well done. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon. I got American parts. I got American faith. In America's heart. That's all for today's show. Thanks so much to producers Haley and Greg Eben and Robert Marlowe who helped me pick clips. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. In my heart.